0: Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: pushkin this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, I'm joined by writer and director, Nicole Center. She began her career back in 1996 with Walking and Talking, a modest film about two young women, played by Katherine Keener and the late Anne Hesch, whose friendship takes a turn when one of them decides to get engaged. The film is funny, tender, a little bit thorny. It's also a blueprint to the human comedies Center has made, in the intervening 27 years. Whether it's in pictures like Friends with Money, Please Give, or Enough Said, her stories are often populated by what writer Ariel Levy calls people confronting ordinary circumstances and falling short because they're afraid of getting hurt or of getting old or simply of changing. It's a good description from her and one that aptly describes Hall of Center's latest film entitled You Hurt My Feelings. In it, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays a teacher and writer whose marriage is upended when she overhears her husband offering a critical assessment of her latest book. Here's a clip from the trailer.
3: So Elliot tells me you're a writer. And your
2: last one. It should have been done better. There's lots of new voices. Refugees, cancer, murder, abuse. I'm an old voice.
0: You're the best voice.
3: Maybe if dad hadn't just been verbally abusive, it would have been a bestseller. Don't say that.
0: Your memoir is great. Your new book is great.
3: we on, go sneak up on
0: him. Can you say anything? No, like, I, can't. I can't, it feels too late.
3: Oh my God, oh my Wait, God, Dad. I think I'm gonna throw up. Okay. Wait, what do we got, right here? No, I don't think I can,
0: I can't.
1: If I did say that,
0: you took it out of context. Are you gonna gaslight me now? This whole world is falling apart and this is what's consuming you.
3: Mom, well, you're not helping.
4: I love you.
2: okay, well, never mind. That was from A24's latest film, You Hurt My Feelings, which is now in theaters across the country in limited release. The movie has opened to pretty rave reviews, including one in the Washington Post from critic Anne Hornaday, who hailed Hall of Center as one of American cinema's inexplicably best-kept secrets. And that line, which I really like, is exactly why I wanted to sit with her today, to highlight not just this excellent new film, but an artist who's been quietly working around the edges, making the kind of poignant and original work that I hope continues to be made on the other side of this writer's strike, which is something Nicole and I discuss toward the end of this conversation. We also unpack her early years growing up in a creative family, the film that made her want to be a director, the intensely personal nature of her work, and why, after nearly three decades, she continues to stay on what she calls the seesaw between art and life. This is Nicole Center. Nicole, it's a pleasure to meet
3: you. Thank you so much. Likewise.
2: How are you feeling? Excited. To be on the podcast or to release this movie or all the above?
3: All of the above, actually. It's like preparing for all of this makes me kind of anxious, knowing that all the publicity is coming up. But once I'm doing it, I'm excited and I'm happy to talk about my movie. I'm thrilled people want to hear what I have to say.
2: Well, why don't we start there? Because you have this excellent new film entitled You Hurt My Feelings. It's about a professor and published writer played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus that discovers her husband doesn't particularly like the new book she's been working on. Now, was some of this premise informed by a diary entry you had?
3: No, but it's definitely something I've thought of a lot, obviously. And I thought, oh, I could make a movie, I think, about that. I loved the awkwardness of it. It's complicated. There's just no right answer because I am not my work. I am me. And even though my my movies reflect me completely, you know, they're autobiographical in a, you know, non-literal way. And I haven't figured it out.
2: <laughs> I feel like that question of can someone love you if they don't love your work is an especially loaded proposition for you because as you said, the films are so inextricably linked to your life. Did exploring that in this movie <laughs> help in any way? No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> not at all. I don't even know if Tobias' character did the right thing or the wrong thing. I don't judge.
2: It's just... That's the husband.
3: Yeah. It's just so interesting to me. Also, the the can someone love me and not love my work, I think... They can. I think someone can. You think so? Yes. However, the person whose work is not being loved could possibly feel like they couldn't be respected if that person didn't like their work. It's kind of shameful and humiliating, and I would assume this person just does not respect me at all. They're laughing at me inside, and yet they probably could love me.
2: Have you had that in your life? Where someone didn't like the films of Nicole Hall of Center, but loved Nicole Hall of Center?
3: I wouldn't say loved or disliked all the films, but I've certainly tried to be with people who felt that way. Really? Yeah,
2: not successfully. How long does it last for? Probably too long. <laughs> you said recently, as long as my loved ones like most of my work, I'm good. It's because my movies are so personal. If you don't like my movies, how can you like me? My characters are filled with my humor, my arrogance, my self-pity.
3: I said arrogance?
2: I didn't make it up. That's
3: not a word I would use. I was misquoted. Not that I would be embarrassed to say I have arrogance. I mean, everyone does to some degree, but that wouldn't be the three adjectives that I would describe. So you're wrong. The
2: interview in Variety has it wrong.
3: I haven't read it yet.
2: Well, it was it was from January. Oh, well, everything's different now. I was arrogant then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I think you've just transformed. <laughs> Should we move arrogance to hubris? <laughs> I'm trying to help yeah, you. Yeah, I like hubris. My characters are filled with my humor, my arrogance, my self-pity.
3: Gee, it's funny. I only relate to the, well, I guess self-pity too, for sure. And my humor and i think my heart should be in there because they're in my characters okay we'll go with that
2: in the case of you hurt my feelings it's my understanding that you had to direct part of the film through a laptop because you had covid during production how do you communicate your humor your heart and your self-pity through a computer screen
3: well, unfortunately, it's possible. <laughs> I didn't have to be there for four days. It was difficult. I was really happy we didn't shut down because we wouldn't have been able to come back. So they sent me home, and on my laptop, the first AD would FaceTime me and bring her phone to the actors and film the rehearsal. So I'm watching it, and I would give direction. There's a scene in a bathroom that's very, very close. It's just the AD couldn't fit. So I had to give a note to like a PA who gave it to the second AD, who gave it to the first AD, who gave it to the actors. And sometimes it was completely
2: wrong. What was the note?
3: Oh, it would be anything. Anything like, um, oh, could you step forward? And then I hear the direction being given. Can you step back? (laughs)
2: It's like the most high-stakes game of telephone.
3: Yes, exactly. I was so frustrated, sometimes very frustrated, but also still really excited and jazzed up about directing a scene. And I wasn't very sick. That's a big part
2: of it. That frustration you felt, though, how do you not lose your cool in that situation? How do you stay focused on communicating all the things that make your films your films?
3: I watched... Every moment that I could, I did feel sorry for myself because I'm thinking I make a movie every, you know, 80 years and we two out of three weeks, really. I mean, 22 it, day shoot. Yeah. So I was uh, unhappy and, uh, <laughs> and my son actually <laughs> had come with me to shoot a behind the scenes of me. And then he got COVID, but I got my movie made and he didn't. So sometimes I would, put myself on mute and give a good...
2: Ah. Is that what it sounds like?
3: I was being kind to your ears.
2: I could take it. If you need to get it out.
3: No, it's okay. It's early in it's the morning. It's over.
2: Okay. <laughs> it's It's long ago. I'm glad you mentioned your son because the other dynamic in the film is between the mother and a son who wants to be a playwright. Throughout the movie, in these dynamics, you seem to be unpacking the difference between honesty, and support. As a parent whose kids have some artistic ambitions, as your kids do, have you found navigating that line challenging?
3: I find it very challenging. I'm afraid I'll always say the wrong thing. First, because I'm their mom. And second, because I think they do have a great deal of respect for my opinion and probably make it too important. I can't say I've ever lied to my kids about their work, though. I think they're talented. And again, I am their mom. But I will say, you know, it's rough. You know, one son wants to be a screenwriter. So I say, you know, it's it's a first draft and I really like this about it. And you're a really good writer. I think it just got boring here. I mean, I can say that and they can take it.
2: You give honest feedback.
3: Yeah, I do. And I think it would be difficult to give honest feedback if I thought their work was crap. That would be really hard because I would still probably support them and say, I like it. Keep going. I might say less.
2: Do you think we're in a generation where parents are overly supportive of their kids?
3: Oh, my God. There's a scene in this movie that I cut out. It didn't really work, but Owen Teague, who plays Elliot, the kid, is walking down the street and he stops at a corner stoplight and he overhears a mother and her little girl And the mother says, you know, press the button, make it turn green. And the kid presses the button, and she said, press it again, you can do it. Oh, my God, you made it turn green. And he gives a look like, oh, my God, this is sick. That little girl now thinks she has the power to control traffic lights, and she's four. So I have actually overheard that exact conversation. And also what went with it was like a,
1: yay,
3: so, yeah. And you
2: think this is emblematic of
3: um, maybe overcorrecting our own childhoods, possibly, uh-huh. because I mean, I had a good one, but a lot of kids did not get praised. And also, I think the trends, right? They say you got to praise your kid, praise, 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 you know, tell them they can do anything. I mean, when I told my kid, one of my sons, that he wasn't really going to be an NBA player, he was so upset. <laughs> He was like five feet and 12.
2: (laughs) My mom did the exact same thing to me. Get out. At around 12 years old. MBA? MBA. She said, look at your family. (laughs) No one over six feet. It's not going to happen. And could you
3: play basketball?
2: I was very good. And I still play every Sunday and it's all fine.
3: Good. Probably have a better life.
2: It was traumatizing in the moment, though.
3: Yeah, Broke my heart. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I broke my kid's heart.
2: But when it came to your earliest artistic endeavors, this was in the 70s. You and your family relocate from the Upper West Side to Santa Monica. Did your mother and stepfather support what you called corny drawings with poems on them?
3: First of all, I'm very impressed with your homework. You did really good, really well. (laughs) Thank you for the correction. Yes. (laughs) God forbid. Yeah, absolutely. Especially my mom, I remember she was thrilled beyond belief, just like she is now with my creative endeavors. And I actually sold some of those little pictures. They were very 70s. I'd like draw with a rapidograph pen, which is a very fine point and make a poem about rainbows.
2: You would sell them in stores in Beverly Hills?
3: Yes, a couple of stores in Beverly Hills. Just curious, what were the poems about? Trees and rainbows and sunshine and hope and our spirits. I was a very airy, fairy 16-year-old, 1976.
2: So I'm trying to make sense of this because... You once said they were probably really ultimately about depression, (laughs) and I didn't know it.
3: I'm funny and clearly self-aware, because I don't remember saying any of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe as well. Absolutely. Because, you know, it goes kind of hand in hand, being 16 and being
2: depressed. At that age, did you see thoughtfulness and intellect to be synonymous with depression? Did that all seem to be part of a similar identity?
3: Yeah. Those were the people that I felt closest to because we were all capable of feeling joy as well. But to not, you know, people who who don't see the world as ugly as it can be. (laughs) No, I don't want to hang out with them. And you knew that then? Definitely. I had fewer friends than I wanted so
2: you wanted more friends?
3: Well, I wish that people would be good enough for me to want to be friends with them. But there were only a few. <laughs> Does that sound arrogant?
2: Um, you know, according to a Variety article, you know, maybe. <laughs> so from the poetry paintings, I want to chart your path a little bit, because you have stints at Sonoma State University, San Francisco State University, before graduating in 1984 at NYU. When you graduated from college, it's my understanding that you left thinking you were gonna be a screenwriter. But did that all change the day you walked into a theater to see Stranger Than Paradise by Jim Jarmish?
3: Yeah, like I wanted to be a director when I started film school, absolutely. But I didn't, I came out of NYU with a pretty crummy, overly long short.
2: Um, it's called Every Other Weekend.
3: Uh, Yeah. I thought it was terrific. I heard someone behind me say it was really bad. Steve Perkins. If you're out there, Steve Perkins, I heard you.
2: And you know, I'm sure Steve watches all your films now and wonders, wow, did not see that coming.
4: <laughs> That's really funny.
3: <laughs> so actually, Steve, I made a whole movie about overhearing you say you didn't like my movie. Um. But then making it was a terrible experience Mm -hmm. as
2: well. And your stepfather didn't like it very much either, right?
3: No, he was honest. And he kind of said, you know, yeah, um, I don't see this going anywhere, Nick. Maybe you want to stop spending all my money and (laughs) get a job.
2: It's like that scene in Inside Lewin Davis.
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. With F. (laughs) Marie Abraham? Yeah.
2: (laughs) I think about that.
3: Unbelievable. And I also had an agent when I was trying to get an agent tell me that I should definitely give up the directing part and just be a writer i mean who tells somebody like that i know his name too but i don't i don't need to say it
2: yeah but you already got one steve i mean
3: it's funny because i have such a terrible memory but i remember these two people's
2: names very well Mm -hmm. despite the harsh comments from your stepfather and, and steve perkins what did happen in that theater watching stranger than paradise
3: It was so unique and so slow and weird. And I loved it so much that I guess it inspired me to think I could do my own version of unique and weird. I know Judy Bloom is very much in the zeitgeist right now, but reading her books when I was a little girl made me want to
2: be a writer. When reading her books, you have this lovely quote. Mm. I thought, if I can't put this book down... And it's about nothing but real people going through real life. Then maybe my nothing will be just as entertaining as hers.
3: Yeah, definitely felt that way.
2: And you felt that way in your late 20s, early 30s when you started fully leaning into wanting to direct?
3: I guess so. I guess because from a little girl to that time, I was writing things, you know, my corny poems Short stories, things I never finished. In a diary, I would write about characters, draw characters. So it was like a, it built upon itself, the idea that I could just be me and maybe make it.
2: After the break, more from writer-director Nicole Center.
4: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring, with access to over six million active hourly workers.
2: me back. You seem to have come of age in a household with pretty large personalities of people being themselves and making it by way of your stepfather, who was a talent manager and producer. Mm-hmm. Did that at all give you confidence that being yourself could be sufficient?
3: I don't know if I ever felt that way exactly, but I certainly saw that people could have creative careers. My biological father, Larry, he struggled a lot to support his art. He was a writer, a playwright, a book writer. He had a lot of different jobs and then eventually made a good living sculpting. So I saw that it could happen. It always amazes me when I see students or kids who grow up in a family of dentists, you know, (laughs) and they want to be a filmmaker. How did they get that idea, (laughs) really? And good for them. But I certainly got the idea because it was all around me.
2: Right, I'm fascinated about these early experiences of yours, in part because I think they inform. You gave me a sort of stern look. So I'm Just I was thinking, how fascinated are you? <laughs> you think it's you think it, I'm feigning fascination? Yeah. Really? Hyperbole. <laughs> all right. Well, here's an edit. <laughs> I'm I'm moderately interested. <laughs> I think
3: you, it embarrasses me.
2: If if you need to say that and you need to lower my fascination to a moderate interest, then I'm happy to oblige.
3: Thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. Clearly, I'm grateful.
2: Um, can we talk about th- this experience you have as as an apprentice editor on Hannah and her sisters? Mm-hmm. Because through the years, many publications we've gone through how often they've been wrong already today. They've compared you to Woody Allen. What I'm most interested in is how watching and syncing different takes of that movie it is so full of dynamic, remarkable performances, how it shaped how you thought both about actors and performance as a young filmmaker.
3: It's an interesting question. I mean, I was syncing the dailies, and I really saw The Man Behind the Curtain, You know, you see an actor do take after take after take and what looks fake and what doesn't look fake. And I think because of that, I didn't like it very much. It was weird. The response I had, it was like, oh, this scene's boring or I don't like that character. And then when I saw the movie, I loved it. A completely different experience and still love it. But I don't think I was thinking very much about myself. I was so absorbed in this job and pinching myself that I had this job. I was so stressed about the job, but I had a lot of fun. I mean, I had preferences. You know, why did she do it that way? Why did he say it there? Watching the blocking change was fascinating. Seeing it work one way and then seeing Woody, you know, changing it completely. Because I I always have opinions, so I was um, having them then.
2: What were and what are your preferences?
3: Well, my preferences generally lean toward natural, you know, hate melodrama, um, a lot of crying. I'm not a big fan of unless, I mean, sometimes I've had it and I feel like you have to really believe it's a powerful, perfect moment for a big cry. Otherwise, it's kind of gross. Um, My preferences, um, funny, even if a person isn't, say, a comedian they got to have an inherent sense of humor if they're going to, you know, read my scripts, I think. That's what I look for. And I prefer actors to look natural. I prefer actors not to have had plastic surgery, at least not noticeable. So those are some of my greater preferences.
2: In those early movies, Walking and Talking, mm-hmm. Friends at Money, and Please Give in particular, did Katherine Keener personify those preferences for you?
3: Completely. That's why I kept casting her.
2: And these movies, like we've been talking about, are so deeply personal for you. Did Catherine feel like a surrogate for you in those projects?
3: Yeah. I was watching myself, in a way, going through whatever Keener was going through, for sure. A better-looking version of myself. (laughs) Yeah, I really felt myself in her, even though really different. Look different, act different, talk different, everything.
2: What was the commonality?
3: I think we just got each other. There was just a a sisterhood there, right, in the beginning. We could just give each other a look. Like, if a scene wasn't going so well, we could just look at each other. And, okay, I'll do it that way, without ever having to say anything. It's kind of similar with Julia Louis-Dreyfus as well. It's like, I found my person, and... It makes making movies so much more emotional and personal and valuable.
2: Watching yourself through these characters, having lived some of these stories, then seeing it on screen in front of a whole crew. Yeah,
3: and then seeing it in front of an audience. How do you hold all that? Well, it's almost unholdable. The joy and the surrealist quality of it and the gratitude I have. And it's I'm still kind of, you know, surprised that I can do this and this happens in my life. You know, I love watching an audience watch my films. And it's just extraordinary. I thought, how did this happen? That I'm affecting all these people. And I feel very, very lucky. And knowing that, like, that's my foible and... I still have that foible. And there it is on screen. It's crazy.
2: Let's interrogate some of those foibles. Okay. You do come back to this charitable side of yourself over and over again. hmm Do you better understand that part of you now after making these movies? No,
3: not at all. I still have a problem to where it annoys the people I'm with. What's the problem? I feel too bad For other people's pain to a pointless part either you know do something or shut up or feel the sadness and move on Mm -hmm. but i
2: go too far what does that mean go too far
3: like get myself into sticky situations think about it too much or get too depressed by seeing one particular homeless person on the street it just stabs me and it stabs everyone it's not like i'm special but I think I have a lot of feelings around it in terms of that I'm not helping or why do I have money and
2: why doesn't that person, you know, just these are topics that just eat me alive. It doesn't get easier for you, though. You don't have any sort of like understanding now that you didn't then.
3: Well, I know now to be more cautious about what I do to help. Like, I know I couldn't work with babies. (laughs) I just, if I worked with a sick baby, I don't think I could handle it. And I'm so grateful to the people who can. It's miraculous to me. But I can work with teenagers or little kids who aren't sick. I mean, I explore that a lot in Please Give, obviously, Mm -hmm. and that's based on my sticky
2: situations. One of my favorite scenes in your whole filmography comes in Please Give. And it's a scene where Catherine Keener goes to volunteer at a program with kids that have Down syndrome. And it's one of the most painful, uncomfortable representations of doing that work that I think I've ever seen committed to film.
3: It's funny because, you know, life, art, life, art. And I wrote that scene and then I thought, why the fuck did I write this scene? I'm gonna have to direct it. (laughs) And I'm the one who cries. And I was really anxious about doing it. And um, I got through it and was able to focus on putting my anxiety into Catherine's character and let her do
2: it. But that was a challenge. That seesaw between life and art. Mm -hmm. Do you ever wonder, God, why do I keep setting myself up to have to direct these horrible, painful scenes that put my foibles on full display? Are you just a masochist, I guess is what I'm asking?
3: I think it's just that feeling like you just got to do it. It's just too good a scene not to do. And because it's so hard for me to do it, of course it's going to be an important scene in the movie, right? Or it is the thing that drew me to it in the first
2: place. It's just a
3: working out, and there's no catharsis.
2: Do you not believe in catharsis?
3: No, I do. But it's not coming to me through making movies, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) It's great to play with that stuff and ask the questions, but no.
2: Was there any scene in this new film of yours that you felt, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm going to have to actually direct this one?
3: Hmm. I know that the first day was inopportune. It was the scene in the sports store where she comes out on the street and almost throws up. And she and Tobias hadn't worked together even. It We rehearsed a little, but that was not an ideal first day. And I was pretty anxious about that. I think everyone was. That it turned out well is
2: great. In that scene, which is the premise of the movie, essentially, she sneaks up to kind of scare her husband in a department store. And in doing so, overhears him bashing her new book. In the aftermath of hearing him, she goes back to her sister's apartment and uh, I thought for a second we could watch that scene.
4: Cool.
3: And I did some things that are good. I mean, I won that thing for the piece in The Atlantic. That was, that was really good. And all the articles and all the essays, you know? I mean, he probably thinks it's just crazy that I even teach, you know? Oh, God, what about my memoir? Oh, he probably thinks it's bad. Oh my God, this whole time. It's about you. How could he think that? How could he possibly respect me? Of course he respects you. (sighs) No, not if he doesn't like my work. You know that. He's probably been lying to me this whole time. No, there's just no way. He's a liar. What a prick, too, you know? That he doesn't think that I could take it. Like, that alone is so insulting. Beth, he loves you, even if he doesn't like your book.
1: I just need his approval of all people.
3: Well, let me read it. It's okay. You don't read. Am I in it? No. You know what? Like, Mark isn't always great, okay? I mean, as an actor, it kind of depends on the role. Why are you whispering? Is he hiding under the couch? I'm just saying he's not always good, you know? And I think that's kind of the same thing. But sometimes you think he's good? Yeah, definitely. So the times when you don't think he's good, what do you say to him? That he's good. Well, what if he found out that you were lying? He'd croak. Well, I want to croak.
2: Watching that scene, I'm reminded of just how perfectly you pace your movies, and they never feel rushed Hmm. in any way. Which I know, for this film... Not particularly true, because you had only 22 days to do it. It is my understanding that's the shortest amount of time you've been given, right?
3: Yes. I'm really moving up in the world. Well, that's what I want to ask you about.
2: You've done all this great work. Thank you. Over?
3: hundred years.
2: A hundred years at least. <laughs> so where are you at?
3: I haven't given up hope that I'll make another movie, and I'll take 21 days next time if I have to. If I have a story I really, really want to tell, I don't care. The conditions, really. I say that now in retrospect, you know, or when it's happening. But I can't let the possibility that it can't happen or, you know, the industry won't be interested in my stories anymore or everything will go to streaming or writers will never be paid properly. I, I don't know. I don't go there. I just hope I have another idea in my head, really, because I'd like to make another movie. But I understand, you know, my material is not generally commercial. I think this movie is probably, you know, enough set, more commercial. And, the, you know, the star thing, you know, having to have triple A-list actors in your movies to get one made is frustrating. I got one, thank goodness.
2: And the strike?
3: Well, the strike sucks. Writers should be compensated. These people make billions of dollars.
2: Did you think we were headed towards this place?
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm not overly involved in my guild, and I feel kind of guilty about that. In fact, I should be picketing right now instead of sitting here talking to you.
2: You can blame me. Okay, you that drag me in you. here. Right.
3: But I will be picketing, and I believe in it completely.
2: You said earlier that I am feigning fascination, which is really not true. But even more difficult is to feign hope mm. in this moment. And yet, I wanted to say, the movie is worth seeing and worth going to the theater to see it. And yet I I do have to ask you, your last film was made and for Netflix. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of-
3: How big a flop this movie's gonna be? Is that what you're trying to say? That no one will go to theaters?
2: Um, I think actually the opposite of my goal and intention of having you on. Good. But I like that you need to keep writing the script towards a way that feels like one of your movies, which is a (laughs) sad ending.
3: (laughs) well, look, I love my movie. I'm really proud of it. It's gotten an amazing response. And so I'm really excited that it's playing. I just hope people go to see it.
2: As we've tried to work our way through the how and the why, you keep doing this work. It does seem to me that element of surprise when you're making something, when you're on set, that that's enough to get you back into the ring. And so I thought, as we leave... We should return to 1992, the year you made your debut film, Walking and Talking. You're shooting in the neighborhood that you're living in. Do you uh, remember that first day on set? I couldn't decide what shoes
3: to wear. It was important somehow. And I was very excited, very nervous. So we were shooting on the street at the ATM where Leah Schreiber is asking to borrow money from Catherine Keener. And... I remember Liev came out of the wardrobe wearing an outfit that I had seen in pictures but he had tucked his shirt in in such a way and kind of had a swagger about his clothes that really startled me and I didn't like it and I didn't know how to change it. I think I might have said something and Liev was like, "No, I'm I'm good. This I like I like I think this looks good." And being you know, the first dance set of my first film, I just let it go. The scene turned out great and who cares if his shirt was tucked in. Um, and you know, that wouldn't happen now. Certainly an actor might push, but at one point I just wouldn't let somebody bulldoze me or they can convince me, but with every movie I say I'm going to do it this better this time. I'm going to communicate better this time. I'm going to stick up for myself better this time. I'm going to demand more this time. And I think I do. I think I get, you know, more confident,
2: older, wiser. You wrote in uh, New York Magazine about that first day. Nothing could have prepared me for walking onto the set for the first time. I felt like I had arrived a little bit, that maybe I could do this for a long time. When I'm directing and it's going well, I feel almost lucky that I'm doing something that speaks to so many different parts of myself. I also... Can't wait until it's over, which is a weird phenomenon. It's like, I love it so much. When is it going to end?
3: (laughs) I think everybody making a film feels that way. I mean, I hope they love it so much, but absolutely true. I'd say it again.
2: That line I love, that maybe I could do this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, now that that's 27 years ago.
3: Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Jesus.
2: Are you surprised that you're here?
3: Completely.
2: Surprised.
3: I don't know how I did it. I don't know why me. (laughs) Really, and not to say I'm not diminishing my own talents or whatever, but so many talented people don't have careers like this. So that part feels lucky. And I just saw a thing I was going through old things that I save, and it was a poem I had written. And at the end of the poem, it said, I hope I get to be a writer. Cause that's what I love to do most, and I was shocked. I was nine years old. I was, sh- I was like, "Whoa, look at that!"
2: Well, I think that's exactly how you've done it. It's by writing. It's by pouring parts of yourself, sometimes parts of your family, friends, and my heart, and your heart <laughs> into these scripts. And uh, the last thing I want to just say to you is, um, when that film came out, which one, Walking and Talking? Okay. There was a a negative review of the movie. It was in the Washington Post, July of 1996. Here's what it said. You already know what this is, don't you?
3: I'm pretty sure, yeah.
2: Writer-director Nicole Center's earnest first feature is a low-budget comedy drawn from the pages of her own diary. Most women have the sense to burn theirs.
3: Isn't that nice? Yeah.
2: I want to say, Mm -hmm. I thank you for putting the pages of your diaries into your movies. And I'm so glad you never burned them. And if you did, you kept them long enough to make all these excellent, excellent films.
3: Thank you so much. You know, you brought, you said the word diary in one of your first questions to me, and that was the first thing I thought of was that review. Good closure.
2: Nicole Hall, off center.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Good luck with the movie. Thanks. All right.
3: That was so much fun. It's just going to be downhill from now on.
2: And that's our show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Ryan Collins and the team at A24, MJ Butler, and of course, our guest, Nicole Holofsetter. Her new film, You Hurt My Feelings, is now playing in theaters across the country. To find tickets, we've included a link in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll find more conversations with other directors, including Steven Soderbergh, Lena Dunham, Questlove, Brian De Palma, Rob Reiner, Janixa Bravo, Natasha Leone, Werner Herzog, Chloe Zhao, and Bill Hader. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with writer Fran Lebowitz you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is CJ Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday for a special episode featuring singer-songwriter Arlo Parks. Until then, enjoy the holiday weekend, stay safe, and so long.
4: Enter now at tmobile.com/unconventionalawards. See you there. Whether
3: you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks.
1: information.